Happy Christmas and welcome to Our Dad Doesn't Like. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Bede. And this is a podcast where Dad and I discuss works of art either from today or the recent past, normally, but today is our special Christmas episode. Yes, I've been looking forward to the Christmas special and uh, enjoyed doing uh, artwork research for it. So just like last year, we're going to be presenting Christmas gifts to each other and artwork for each other to enjoy or perhaps more like the artistic equivalent of a lump of coal. We'll see what happens uh, to celebrate. And so I thought I would let you kick off, Dad, since I'm very keen to get my present. Sure. Okay. Well, I've sent you a document with uh, the artwork that I'm going to be talking about. And it's called The Road to Bethlehem, and the artist's name is Siman Mansour, and it was it's an oil on canvas painted in 2021. Now, before we get into talking about this artwork, I just want to probe a little bit your background knowledge of Christmas. What kicked it all off? What kicks off the whole Christmas story? Well, Mary, either being impregnated by the Holy Spirit or an elaborate cover-up for a tryst, I guess. Yes, I'm not so much talking about the doctrinal or scriptural uh, issues. I'm talking about the history. What's well, Caesar. The Caesar and his um, census. That's right. I would have been very, very disappointed if you hadn't tweaked to that. I mean, this is why Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem. Yeah. Because people were mandated to go to the place where which was their home and in the case of both of them it was bethlehem because they were of the tribe of house of david i have a question though maybe you know the answer to it because it's something that's always i've always wondered about because in all of the all of the prophets said that it would be a child of the lion of david but don't they all have to go to the town from which the man of the family is descended but obviously in this case if you take the doctrine as at its word jesus is not but they go there anyway but was mary yeah I... yeah mary was as well oh okay yeah well i mean I, I so i'm glad first of all that having studied ancient roman history you did remember this critical event and secondly um i have to work in as you know romans or cats into every podcast so this was an obvious avenue very good. All right. So just to give you some background about the artist before we look at this picture, um, Sliman Mansour is a Palestinian artist who was born in 1947. So mm. that actually um, is a very neat coincidence with the history of the time because that's when the State of Israel was created by the United Nations. And then subsequently in 1948, um, the Nakba or terrible dispossession of Palestinians in territories that hadn't been granted occurred. And he has devoted his life's work to expressing throughout the struggle of Palestinian people. And of course, this is a very apt topic nowadays and today, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it would be uh, apposite to have a Palestinian take on on Christmas. Yeah. So he founded, he co-founded the Al Wasiti Art Center in Jerusalem, and it's a, a center that seeks to build 
links between Palestinian artists, and he has taught at numerous universities, including Al Quds University. And he, um, the theme, the constant theme, which he uses, uh, often vegetation or buildings of Palestine, is to depict the history through art. So he use he painted orange trees to depict the land lost in the Nakba, uh, olive trees to depict the land lost during the uh, in the wake of the nineteen sixty seven war, um, and and many of of these themes and and a work other than the one we're talking about today, um, which we'll also put up, is Camel of Burdens, which shows a Palestinian man uh, struggling under the terrible burden of what looks like a flower sack, but is really a Jerusalem and the Dome of the Rock depicted behind it. So uh, his artwork is very evocative of the uh, history, and he it is protest art, but it's done in a very realist way, and it's not done in a... Um, what one would call an aggressively propagandistic way, the art stands in on its own merit. So would you like to describe the painting that I've given you as a Christmas present? Yes, so here we see in the centre of the image is a Madonna and child and Mary is breastfeeding the infant Jesus and we see these sort of traits of um, Western depictions of Mary with and Jesus with the halos around their heads, but she's wearing traditional clothing and sitting on a very humble stool. And in the background, we see a small town uh, banked on some hills, some desert hills, which I suppose is Bethlehem. Uh, but in the foreground, we have these immense, very monolithic cement walls and a watchtower with what seemed to be surveillance cameras perched off the edge of it and then four soldiers right at the front and three of them are looking directly at the viewer but one is turned slightly back towards the Madonna and child and has a more casual pose whereas the three who are facing the viewer have a very commanding pose with their um, legs spread you know in a triangle staring right at you quite um, directly uh, while they're holding their weapons. And all of the tones are very, in the background, quite not sombre, but um, verging on at these desert tones and a sort of greenish-orangish sky so that the Madonna and child in the middle really draw the eye because they're quite brighter and the yellow of their halos really brings you into the centre of the painting. Yes. And what I find, you know, interesting, uh, a number of things. First of all, the the contrast between the the Palestinian village and the modernity of the watchtower and the concrete barrier, but also the ambiguity in the figure of the soldier who's looking through the gate in the barrier at Mary and Jesus, and you don't know whether she's suspicious or whether she's inquisitive mm. um, it, it it it's uh it's it's very difficult to, to tell what the artist intended to um, project 
in that mannerism that she has. Yeah, it is ambiguous, but I she doesn't look to me ready for action. You know, she's not her hand is not on her gun like the others, as I read it. Yes. And to me, her stance is more casual. I, I, it's not even clear whether she's standing or she's in movement towards the Madonna and child, actually, one could say. Um, and I guess that's also, I, I'm presuming that in this depiction, these are Israeli soldiers. Yes. So, yeah, that maybe the um, the fact that three of them are staring out in this very defensive way, whereas one is turning towards the center and towards Madonna and child. It's this um, reflection of the degree of um, acknowledgement of the humanitarian story occurring within the walls. Um, because although the Madonna and child are obviously a symbol of divinity, they're also reflective of this very humble human story, you know, the idea of the child um resting in a manger that although jesus was a divine figure he was born into this humility yes and you know you almost wonder whether the soldier looking through is having pause for thought and has realized the incongruity between the corralling of the town by the walls mm. and the um, event that happened there and how the, all that brutality is inconsistent with the Madonna and the child and and the story of Jesus. And of course, there's a quite significant Palestinian Christian population. And mm. uh, as I'm sure you know, the Eastern churches, there's a, a real patchwork of, of different Eastern churches with different uh, rites, and there's a very venerable um, center for Christianity, although they're a very, very tiny minority, even within Palestine. Uh, I'm actually happen coincidentally to be reading a history of the Crusades at the moment, mm. and they make brief mention of Gaza and, of course, of Jerusalem and Acre and Jaffa. And, all these places that were crusader fortresses and it, it it really brought home to me that if someone was to be transported in time from then to now the exact same conflict is is going on with mm. different balance of power between the participants um and they would perhaps wonder at the fact that um a thousand years after all those events happened, the 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 conflict rolls on in the very same Holy Land. Yeah. I mean it's a fascinating history. Um, but I, I think when you look at the impact of the conflict today, it also really brings home we look at events like the Crusades through a more clinical historical lens, and you forget that there was also presumably this very human impact on the ordinary people then as well with all these besieged cities during the Crusades. And it also brings home then when you can project that human story back into history, how severe the intergenerational trauma is. You know, we can, I was listening to a podcast about the history of Israel and Palestine 
and they were interviewing the author of this book who'd written a history of the area. And he was saying that in all the reviews, you know, the constant critique was, oh, you should have started the book in this year or this year or this year. Instead, you know, these conflicts have been, this land has been contested for so long that it's impossible to choose a start point for this conflict and contest that will please everyone. Because where do you ever draw the line when it's been such a long history? Yeah. And I I think, you know, one of the other things that struck me, they they recorded um, in this book, there was a recording or a reproduction of a diary of an Islamic traveler who'd come from Spain, which was then, of course, half Christian, half Muslim. And he said that even in the midst of the war, there were still um, caravans of muslim traders coming from mesopotamia towards palestine who would the crusaders just let go past and there were pilgrims going towards jerusalem who were allowed through and the armies were fighting in very close proximity mm-hmm. and a lot of the a lot of the franks as they were generically called but i mean that was just a meaningful western europeans ended up you know, in a real sense, orientalized by the fact that they lived in this area for more than a hundred years mm. um, and adopted um, oriental habits. Something that I was interested to see about um, Steeman's art is that he has used the motif of the Madonna before, and there's a far more perhaps telling depiction um, called Bethlehem 1980s, which is a cartoon rather than a painting, which again shows the Madonna feeding the infant Jesus, but behind and completely enveloped by barbed wire, mm. which uh, again brings home the um, the horrendous contrast between the humanity of that story and the reality of of life. Do you do you think that? art at all loses anything you know the transaction between art and political statement do you think that the political message is always the winner and something is detracted from the art by its being used in that way from the aesthetic enjoyment do you mean um i mean very difficult to determine um i mean of course this becomes very tricky because there are people who say you know we've spoken about art that has been made for art's sake many times which sort of seems bare of political messaging but Mm. then there are academics and critics who say well everything is political by being apolitical (laughs) you're being political and you know we can start going down this um path of well the so-called purely aesthetic work of art is in fact heavily political by refusing to engage with political messaging but without going down that very fraught path I don't think so because I mean this becomes a very personal question because for me a lot of the aesthetic enjoyment of art comes from the visual analysis of it Um, I mean of course you can have an, an immediate aesthetic reaction to a work and I think here with this work The Road to Bethlehem I find it 
aesthetically very striking. You know, you have this natural beauty in the background with this humble town and the very peaceful Madonna and child contrasted with the harsh realism of the security state in the foreground. That makes for a very striking aesthetic impact. And I think that that aesthetic contrast feeds into the political message that he is trying to mm. deliver. So I think in this case, the one reinforces the other. Mm. Um, but then, of course, you know, you often criticize art that is ugly, as I'm sure you would <laughs> bluntly say. But of course, that raw ugliness can be part of delivering a political message and it's not seeking to be pretty or aesthetically pleasing. Mm. It's a particular political message embedded in art could be to draw attention to horror. So yeah. it also depends on how you're looking at aesthetics. But I don't think that one, that a political message necessarily detracts from pure aesthetic enjoyment. I think that the question I would raise is um, when a political message is clear, why would we try to ignore it? Yes. And of course, I think we haven't passing mentioned some of the um, constructivist art of the 1920s in, in the Soviet Union, which was created certainly for political and propagandistic purposes, but loses nothing in its artistic value by that. Mm. Um, the one one thing I'd like to end off with in, in discussing my piece is the use of all the the relationship between religion and politics mm. um, was a very uh, topical one in the 1970s and 80s during the era of military dictatorships in South and Central America. And there was a strain within the Catholic Church that uh, developed what was called liberation theology, which sought to say or use the gospel, the message of the gospel, as a vehicle for critiquing um, those societies and saying, you know, that the church couldn't be neutral, just a neutral standing between the landowners and the army on the one hand and the peasantry on the other. It actually had to take a side mm. in order to further justice in this earth, not just salvation in the next. And so I found a, a, a liberation theology version of the nativity scene, mm. uh, a, a number of uh, South American, uh, it's actually from Nicaragua, this piece, farmers presenting corn and other indigenous foods to the infant Jesus lying on a manger. Mm. So that's that's yet another take on the nativity story with a political message. Yeah, I think that the um, powerful thing about the nativity story is that regardless of one's religious views, if you um strip that away still the story of this this ancient story which i think mirrors a lot of other storytelling tropes actually across cultures um you know the idea of the mother and child and um i guess the somewhat beleaguered poor making a journey um and ideas of the blessings brought to one through humility. You know, if you look at the three kings who bring their gifts, it is a very powerful story. Um, 
yes, without necessarily religious context. So good. Yeah. Oh, well, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for this Christmas present. I really like it. Good. I'm glad. Um, but now to take another turn, I've sent you a link to your Christmas present. Would you like to open it now? Sure. Oh no. This is <laughs> Is this revenge for the Krampus? It is exactly revenge for the Krampus. Would you like to describe what you're seeing? What I'm seeing is a truly horrible figurine. Um, it's got a, looks like the skull of a horse superimposed or dressed in it with what looked like clerical vestments almost of cream and red in color. Uh, and it has no limbs and it's just standing there looking at the viewer and it's got a horse's or a donkey's ears and it looks very very sinister and all the more sinister because you you don't know what's actually underneath the robe mm. well as you said we'll we'll get into exactly what this is but last year you gave me an artwork featuring the krampus would you like to for anyone who's interested in the horror of last christmas you can listen back on last year's christmas special but would you like to quickly review the role of the krampus Yes, and it's still a current role, I will remind you. The, the Krampus is a figure um, which is, is, a, is a monstrous figure with claw and stick-like hands and teeth, and it originates from southern Germany and Austria. And within the, the Christmas traditions of, of Germany, the role of the Krampus is to determine which children are good and which children are bad, and to punish the good children and reward the bad children. And the Krampus looks very, very frightening. And last year I gave you a print or a painting drawing of a Krampus as my Christmas present to you. So this is obviously retaliation. Yeah, well, I thought that you would like it since you're obviously so interested in spooky European Christmas traditions. Uh, this is the Mary Lloyd. It's from, do you want to guess where it's from? Is it judging by the spelling Wales? Yeah, it is from Wales. Um, so it could be trotting its way over to you in Australia slowly. This <laughs> this is a work by Carissa Swenson, who's an artist and graphic designer who now lives and works in New York. And her work normally combines textile work and sculpture to make these very unique dolls, which are often anthropomorphic animals. But I say animals loosely because she often draws on myths and fairy tales for inspiration. So what you get are very um, sort of oddball characters drawing on fable. And the Mary Lloyd comes from this Welsh tradition where you have a hobby horse, um, which is made from a horse's skull, sometimes actually a wood or paper skull but often an actual skull which is mounted on a pole and then the head is decorated with ribbons the eyes might be made of glass it might actually get quite mechanical because the jaw might be able to open and close so that it can snap at people and inside under what's normally a white sort of shroud is a person on this hobby horse to take it around um and you know what 
you know, this is another reason why it's a great gift for you. Do you know what this sort of reminds me of? What does it remind you of? The Village. Oh, it does. The M. Night Shyamalan film. Yeah. Where these yeah, with people... the monsters that were made to keep people from going out. Yeah, so that's also why I thought you'd like it. Um, and it's decorated with bells, so it makes sounds as they go around. And the person inside the hobby horse is ex- escorted by a group of men, normally with a very smartly dapper, uh, well-dressed leader and a merry man playing music and often also these sort of stock characters like Punch and Judy. And they go out at dusk from door to door and sing at each door's. And so they sing a song in Welsh and then they get a response from the person inside behind the locked door. And the whole point of this exercise is that the Mary Lloyd is asking for entry to the house and the person inside is denying entry. And so eventually when the person inside runs out of sung excuses, the horse is allowed to enter for food and drink. And then sometimes it sort of runs around the house causing havoc and scaring children. And do you know what that part, the idea of the Mary Lloyd scaring children, reminds me of? Yes, I know. This is your your and mummy's mockery of me when I was very, very small and on holiday with my parents in the eastern highlands of what was then Rhodesia. There was a horse standing next to a fence. Now, I was five years old. I was very tiny. The horse was enormous. And my mother encouraged me to pat the horse. Now, I wasn't going to risk life and limb by touching the horse. So I got a stick and I patted the horse's nose with the stick. <laughs> <laughs> and it was immortalized in a photograph. Yes. We have evidence of this fear. And so based on that fear, how long do you think you could um, sing your way out of accepting the horse into your house? Look, I'd sing the whole of. I don't know, the longest opera by Wagner's keep this damn thing out of my house. I can tell you that. I'd, I'd sit there singing all night. There was no way I would I let it in. Well, I'm not sure if you'd be successful, though, because, you know, when we used to play Sing Star on the PlayStation, I'd always win. <laughs> the only thing you were good at yes. was this extra bonus game on the Sing Star where, based on your pitch, you would play that electronic ping pong game. and with Oh, the, yes. The bar would go up and with the low it would go down. And so you would just stand there going, ew, ew, <laughs> to win the game. Um, but that but there, was some, there were some songs I would win on, like Radio Gaga. I was always yeah. good on that. And yeah. Don't Ya. I like <laughs> that. Because you can't toss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think this, this is a very, very cruel present and it's going to traumatise me now. I, I, I just shudder to think what sorts of dreams I'm going to have and I pity the people in the little Welsh villages huddling beneath the slag heaps of the coal mines when on Christmas Eve this damn thing comes clopping up to the door and you have to sing to keep it away. Well, you know, it's actually not just in Wales because it's part of a wider hooded animal tradition. Sounds like there's some very niche master's theses coming out of this in um, Kent and the Cotswolds. And its origins are sort of unknown and the etymology of the name too. Some people said that the Mary could come from Mary and the horse be a reference to the donkey ridden by Mary. Um, Or it could come from an old English term meaning merry game. 
but it's sort of widely accepted that it actually means grey mare. Um, there are some ideas that it could be a pre-Christian tradition, but it's generally accepted that it actually comes from the popularity, apparently, of hobby horses among the upper classes in the 17th century in the British Isles. Yeah, I've seen prints or paintings of people disporting themselves dressed in, you know, their finery. I think it was even into the 18th century. Mm. And it was almost like a type of dance with people prancing around with hobby horses. Yeah. And have you heard of hobby horsing now as like a trendy hobby? No, no. Yeah. I thought so, died. There are these like niche communities of hobby horses, I guess, who have very serious competitions of dressage and show jumping. Really? Hobby show horses. jumping? Yeah, so yes. these people running around jumping over what look like, you know, the actual jumps that you use for actual horse yeah. jumping, holding a hobby horse. Apparently it's very popular in Finland. Um, yeah, so... I think that this is actually quite a good gift because it's trendy. It has historical elements. It has connections to your life, so it's very thoughtful. It draws <laughs> on your interest in terrifying children, which I've been the victim of. So I think it's quite a multifaceted gift. Yeah, well, I think it's it's a really horrible gift and i i thought i was extending an olive branch this christmas by giving you a nice gift and in return i've got a horrible one and i'm but i'm not afraid of this mary lloyd thing anyway because i know that no horse would be able to swim what you know it either gets to southeast asia and then it has to swim to australia and it's not going to make it whereas all the krampus has to do is just keep plodding on from southern germany towards Osnabrück, where I know you're having your Christmas. And, you know, it's probably two-thirds of the way there now, so I think I you're going to have a worse Christmas than I. I think that the Mary Lloyd set off earlier this year. It's teamed off with the Yeti, your other literal bête noire, and they've been travelling together across the continents, and they're now on some cargo ship that's going to dock in Sydney soon and reach Gosh. you. In time, terrible. In Barrandoo. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, do you have any advice for us? Are you willing to give advice after receiving this horrible gift? Yeah, I, I, I am. I, I think if I recall correctly, my advice after that last Christmas was not to get involved in the work of dressing the Christmas tree because I find that very, very difficult. But Mummy likes it, and we did it together, and it turned out really nicely. But if you are going to, you have to be really keep your wits about you because this year when we were doing it, I had a terrible accident because oh. there were all these lights, you know, <laughs> strewn across the floor. And one of them was a whole lot of little lights in the shape of stars. And in order to avoid something, I think it was your dog who was getting underfoot, I stepped back and I was in bare feet and the sharp plastic point of one of the stars went right into the softest part of my foot and I crushed the thing beneath my foot but it was absolutely agonizing and I said some very unchristmassy words <laughs> so um 
so that my advice is, you know, wear shoes when you're when you're dressing the Christmas tree. It's very niche advice, almost as niche as the hobby horsing trend. Yeah. Um, but sort of similar to the agony of stepping on a Lego block. Yes. You? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Well, thank you for that. I'm sure everyone will be remembering that as they prepare for Christmas. Um, we will be back in the new year for what will be our 50th episode. Yeah. Amazing to think that, isn't it? Yeah. Amazing to think that you've survived so many discussions about art that you don't like. Um, but it's, I'm very impressed by you. You've survived the agony of stepping on that star and this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you everyone for joining us and a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We will be back soon with more horrific art for Dad to look at and we hope you'll be able to join us. You can find us always on Instagram at ArtDadPod and until then, thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.